Park here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Codebeam STO, previously the Erlang User Conference, celebrates 20 years of Erlang being made open source. Taking place the 31st of May through June 1st, Codebeam STO is the only conference in Europe bringing the Erlang and Elixir communities together. Some speakers have already announced, and more details, including early bird tickets, can be found at CodeSync.global. Monadic Party is a five days long Haskell Summer School in Poznan, Poland, taking place June 11th through 15th. They will have two tracks, one for programmers that aren't experienced in Haskell and would like to learn it from the basic concepts, and the other track is for people already familiar with the language and will present a section of talks and workshops on a variety of topics. Their speakers include Julie Moronuki, who wrote Haskell Programming from First Principles, Chris Martin, co-author of an upcoming book, Joy of Haskell, a GHC contributor, Christoph Gogolewski, Carter Schoenwald, Marcin Shemultuski, and Michal Kowalitz. They have an open call for speakers and are looking for people who want to lead a series of lectures or workshops. Check them out at monadic.party. International Conference on Functional Programming 2018 will be taking place September 23rd through 29th in St. Louis, Missouri. ICFP is an annual programming language conference. It is sponsored by the Association for Computing and Machinery, ACM, under the aegis of ACM Special Interest Group on Programming Languages, SIGPLAN. For more information, see the general ICFP website. And this year, ICFP is co-located with Strangeloop. The 2018 ICAFP programming contest will be on Friday, July 20th through Monday, July 23rd. The Strangeloop conference is coming up again this fall. Strangeloop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 26th through the 28th of 2018 at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June 2018. The CFP is now open for submissions. It can be found at thestrangeloop.com slash cfp.html. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to share your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Brian Troutwin. Brian, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? So I'm a software engineer. I tend to focus on systems that have some particular hard constraint, either low latency or high scale or high inability to cope with failure in some sense. So I don't know. I guess I've, I've talked quite a bit kind of publicly about what I do um, in a variety of talks. And I think probably my most well-received talk was the Charming Genius of the Apollo Guidance Computer, which kind of was a, an influential piece of computer hardware or, or project for me in my undergraduate. So that kind of encapsulates 
that particular project kind of encapsulates what I find interesting about computer science or software engineering as well. Yeah, I knew you from some of your talks, I believe, mostly Erlang, when you were talking about some of the stuff you did at AdRoll and mm-hmm. being out there, a couple of the Erlang conferences, a couple of other conferences. No, you've given your space-related and inspired talks. So figured it, it's been a while since we've met in person, almost coming up on three years now. But yeah, I figured yeah. touch in and uh, see what you've been up to. Because I know last time we talked, Rust was still pretty young. You were getting some interest in Rust. You've been doing Erlang and doing a lot. So kind of figured worth catching up and see how Erlang and distributed systems and reliability and scalability and all that other stuff that you talk about and use the shuttles and rockets and the rest of the space race kind of stuff as inspiration of like, look, here's why these things are important. We may not be doing life critical apps at this point, but you never know how it's going to turn out. But so in the meantime, what have you been doing with Erlang? What's Erlang looking like for you now? And then we'll get into some of the stuff you've been doing with Rust and how that's evolved. Yeah. Yeah. So you you mentioned AdRoll. So there I was working on a really high scale system. You know, by the time I left, I think we were doing around a million transactions a second, 24-7. That was an airline project with some C++ bits kind of put inside of it as NIFs. The particular like difficulty with that system was just understanding the behavior of a piece of software at that scale doesn't really translate up from, say, unit testing or even more complicated forms of testing like property testing. You know, you really get emergent behaviors at scale because you have this interaction of the software and the computer that you can't as a human being really conceive of right so my work there was kind of around performance you know how do we reduce as much as possible say memory allocation in the vm itself so doing deep dives on the beam or on introducing observation of the software system telemetry things like that so that we could build a model of the actual running behavior of the piece of software and that was a really interesting project. And I left Avril, oh, about two years ago. I work at Postmates now in the infrastructure team, and I kept going with the observability. We don't have nearly the same scale concern at Postmates. Postmates, for those that don't know, is basically a delivery company, like a, an ad hoc delivery company. So if you want something from a restaurant or any other type of local business, you request that item from us, we collect your money, then we send somebody to give it to you. So there's actually a lot of software that's running to facilitate that process. And it's difficult to understand the conglomeration of all of that software. So I kept going with the observability, which is how I got into doing Rust in production. Like you mentioned, I think when we talked last, Rust was still pretty young. Um, I was excited about it. I hadn't really used it in any serious capacity other than just fiddling with it and following along with the mailing list. But by the time I had gotten to Postmates, Rust had stabilized. I had a project that I was seriously considering writing in C++. I elected not to do that straight out and instead wrote a prototype in Rust and kept going with that prototype because it seemed like I would have an easier time both producing a quality program and getting people inside of the company to contribute to it in a way that we kept quality up, right? Because C++ is a really, really nice language. It does a lot, but there are also a lot of foot guns. And it's not clear when you've sort of strapped a new foot gun onto yourself, where Rust, with its you know memory safety model, 
kind of cuts out a broad array of possible foot guns. Now, that's not to say that there aren't tons of them in there. Um, there certainly are, but it, it made it a little easier to write this sort of complicated project. And I worked on that for almost two years, and I've switched back recently to a coordination project in Erlang. So kind of your prototypical Erlang project where it takes a bunch of inputs, processes them with very high high concurrency, and then pushes them right back out to downstream systems. Incidentally, the Rust project, or Rust projects, I should say, they're all open source. One's called CERNIN for Yunji CERNIN, the Apollo 17 astronaut who was the last to step off the moon. And then a couple of support libraries. Hopper, which is a concurrent multiprocessor single consumer queue that is able to flush itself to disk in high capacity or in high contention environments. And Quantiles, which is a an online summarization library or a collection of algorithms, I should say. And you did Adroll, and you mentioned a million transactions per second by the time you left. Mm-hmm. Now, at one point, I was also with a real-time bidding company. That's how I first got exposed to Erlang. And one of the things that was interesting about that, even though we weren't, that wasn't the primary place that Erlang was, but the rest of the code was when you get into some of that scale, the observability and things like property testing and the like almost become self-evident without having to do it. Because when you're getting a million transactions per second, in your case, you get a lot of data that's probably more diverse than any property thing a property test could write without you actually uh, spinning up a ton of servers just to try and replicate that. So when you go from that environment into some of this coordination and the lack of throughput that you're getting in real world test cases, did you kind of feel a little spoiled after that since (laughs) Admiral and bidding is important in the fact that you don't want to spend money you can't spend, but it's not critical if you screw something minor up and you can start to say, oh, okay, we got something wrong here. We're parsing a log here, so we're not actually bidding as opposed to we're bidding wrong. What was that experience going back and now that you're doing this other concurrent stuff and going from a world where you know in a matter of seconds or minutes at the most if you screwed something up to a world now where you've got this other problem of observability and correctness that you're trying to observe? Yeah, yeah. So the the system that I'm working on now has to do with coordinating your order. So the consequence of failing to handle the domain space there is that you don't get your item or you get a different item or you get an item that is charged incorrectly to you. But those are all human time scale concerns, right? And it's not the giant, giant scale system that the real-time bidder at Adderall was. To your question, do I feel, did I feel spoiled? I, you know, I absolutely did. You know, I thought a lot about, say, the, I think they were called Black Knight Group. They're a, they were a financial trading house that sort of very famously killed themselves by overspending, right? They just spent all of their money and then more, and then they went out of business because of a software bug. So I thought a lot about that style of catastrophic event while I was at AdRoll, and it would be basically impossible other than just being completely without professional quality. It would be basically impossible to do that at Postmates with the project that I'm working on now. But it was really nice working on, an, on the system at AdRoll because of exactly what you said, right? Like property testing has a, a wonderful ability to suss out bugs in your system by generating random inputs and in, from a domain. But the problem with that, even with more 
more recent papers like Beginner's Luck, which allows you to sort of guide the, the randomization, it's very hard sometimes to find very low probability issues. In the ad roll system, very low probability issues would happen regularly. You know, they would happen every hour or so. So we could, you know, write traces to capture these low probability events, and then we could build models, mental models around, okay, well, what do we think is happening here and how do we correct it? But even those events would be one out of a billion. So it was a pretty low, low probability, low concern event. Whereas my work right now at Postmates, there's a lot of, okay, if I screw this up, an actual human being or multiple human beings are going to be inconvenienced. It's not critical in the sense that anyone will be injured, but it has an actual human impact that showing you the wrong ad doesn't really have. Or when I was at Rackspace, you know, we used Erlang to coordinate our network devices inside of Rackspace's data centers. The actual human impact there was your website might go offline. You know, that might be your livelihood. So it's kind of, yeah, at, at Avril, I hadn't really thought about this. It's interesting that you say that. I hadn't thought about how spoiled I was to work on such a high scale system where the individual event could fail and that would be okay. It was just an aggregate that it was a problem. But I kind of went from a thing where human beings are inconvenienced by any failure to spoiled back again to human beings are inconvenienced by any failure. So yeah, at Postmates, we think a lot about you know property-based testing. We've been investing in that quite a bit. Tom Santero, formerly of Basho in the New York Times, has been thinking about that for months. And we kick it around in our group. I think a lot about fuzzing you know, a network system, which I have, we haven't built anything. And then also code review, substantial code review, thinking through all of the changes and possible ramifications of what's going on. So yeah, it's a, it's a little bit less of a loose environment, but intentionally, just because, you know, actual human beings are inconvenienced if this doesn't work. And some of that was in the relation to property testing where you realize, I guess, the value of a million requests per second, and you've got a one in a million chance that this will happen. Well, that's happening every second now. And if you're running property tests, how many times do you get to do that? And you kind of realize the value of property testing just right. by having the the inherent property testing of outside systems sending you whatever data. You're hoping the exchanges are good, but who knows what's actually being sent to you on their behalf. Right. And that kind of gets into an interesting. So if you're going to rely on the high scale of a system to catch defects for you, that implies the software is able to, in some sense, inspect itself. It's able to say, hey, it went aberrant here. In Erlang, you kind of get some of that for free if you design your program to crash when it enters an aberrant state. So you, you, get, an, you get a sense of what causes crashes. But if you have a thing that's not technically speaking a crashable failure, then you have to understand, okay, well, in aggregate, what's going on inside of my system? Does that push the system outside of its bounds? So you very rarely think about individual transactions. You think more about groups of transactions that have similar properties or similar behaviors, I guess, since we're talking about property-based testing. Compare that to some of the property-based testing work that I've done in CERNIN, you know, where we have many concurrent actors, and not, not actors in the airline sense, but many concurrent threads, actually they are mostly operating system threads, that can send messages down a queue. They'll arrive in different orders. How do we property test that any given topology of a CERNIN configuration will do what you expect it to do? 
inside of Hopper, where I'm doing a little bit of lock-free programming with two mutexes on either side, you know, how do you build an interpreter for detecting aberrant behavior in this lock-free structure? Both of those, I think, are, are really interesting applications of property-based testing. And kind of to your point, yeah, if you've got if you've got a sequence of events that'll only a sequence of events in your system that'll trigger a bug, how likely is it that you'll generate that sequence of events? The lower the likelihood, the longer you have to run your property tests. You know, small check was a really interesting idea. I forget who the authors of the small check paper was, but basically their their idea is that you enumerate all possibilities. So you just burn through all possibilities and and validate that your program hasn't crashed with the assumption that most program crashes will come with small inputs. But that doesn't really work for finding sequences of events that cause system behavior to become aberrant, especially in some systems that I've worked on where it's you require contention. Like Cernan has a problem in virtualized environments where contention causes behavior to be different from, say, our load testing environment, where Cernan is the sole process, or not the sole process, but the sole important process on the machine, so we give it a bunch of CPUs. That's hard to replicate outside of you know, pushing it into the real, true loaded system and then inspect it at runtime, which is frightening, right? Like that isn't necessarily something you want to have to do. Yeah, and it was one of those, just for everybody listening, I'm not advocating not writing the property test if you're on a system <laughs> under scale. It's the fact that, as you said, you have all this contention, you have all these other events that might happen in different sequences that you might never even get to be able to have a property test go with just because of the amount of concurrency and the amount of throughput that you're getting. Yeah, yeah. And and to kind of elaborate on that, property testing or any of the more randomized testing approaches, chaos engineering kind of broadly, I guess, is the term people use now because of the work that's coming out of Netflix. Any of those testing approaches really force you to invest in this kind of observation technique of, you know, how do I consider this software not as just a thing that I built, but as a running machine? How do I inspect it? How do I reason about the the individual steps that individual pieces or subsystems took? All of those are helpful or maybe even essential, I'd argue, in understanding the behavior of a system once it's live. So property-based testing or any of the other randomized testing approaches that we have now really kind of mandate that you invest in that, which is really, really important. And then I realized we started off, we get a little background of you, and then we kind of caught up with what you've been doing recently. But I think it's We've been talking a little bit, but I think it's time we flash back a little bit to actually how you got into programming and how you got into Erlang, because you said you did some Erlang at Rackspace. What was your first exposure to functional programming? Was Erlang your first functional programming language? Were there others? How did you kind of get started in and around the field of functional programming in Erlang? Yeah. So the way I got started with Erlang in particular is I mistook Joe Armstrong's thesis on Erlang as a prologue paper. So I was in the Portland State University library in the computer science section, and I was really into prologue at the time. I'd read The Art of Prologue. I'd read some of the monographs that we had there on implementing prologues. And I thought, hey, great, there's a new prologue paper. I'm going to pick this thing up and read it. Now, at the same time, I was doing a lot of high-performance computing in the, or I was doing a lot of work in the high performance computing lab in, um, oh shoot, what's it, what's it called? O OpenMP, doing a lot of OpenMP work. So 
I was not disappointed to find that this prologue thesis I thought I was reading was actually a thesis about a new or new to me because Erlang is exactly as old as I am about a new to me programming language that had a lot of the the feel of prologue that I really liked but was focused on concurrency it was focused on you know exploiting all of the CPUs available to it, which at the time when I was in, in undergraduate, there was a lot of talk about the multi-core crisis. What are we going to do about the multi-core crisis? And when I stumbled on Erlang, I thought, hey, this is great. It's a lot nicer than OpenMP. I didn't really understand how I would apply it for building fault-tolerant systems, although Joe talked about that in his thesis, but it, you know, I, I don't think I was far enough along in to understand it. I was just very enthusiastic that I could get it to consume all of my CPUs. And I remember using it in a project. So the course that I was in, we did races for our program. So each each program, if you got first place, I think you got bonus points or something like that. And I remember realizing that one of the projects was very much compute bound. So the coordination aspect of OpenMP didn't really need to exist. So I could just distribute pieces of the computation to an individual node and then sort of munch them together after the fact. And I used Erlang for that, and I felt very clever, and then I won, and I felt even more clever. So I <laughs> kept going with Erlang. And then by the time I graduated, I just happened to luck into Rackspace, which was hiring for someone that actually knew Erlang. And I, I've just sort of kept at it since. As to whether or not Erlang was my first functional programming language, I believe... SML was my first one. So I, I got into programming because I failed at being a mathematician. So I'm very interested in formal logic, but it turns out I was not very interested in being an actual practicing mathematician. But I did a lot of SML when I was at the University of Chicago in the math and computer science tracks there. I don't know. I, I like SML. It's a hard language to work in now, but I think that's partially my attraction to Rust is Rust, to me at least, has a very ML-y feel to it. I didn't really even at first recognize Erlang as a functional programming language. I was thinking of it as a logical programming language, like Prolog, right? <laughs> I was confused. But yeah, SML and then probably Haskell was next and then Erlang would have been next after that. So what put Prolog on your radar if you were interested in Prolog? Was that part of this lab you were involved with, or was that just another language you picked up after standard ML and Haskell? And then you're like, oh, Prolog, and let's just see what's out there for different things. Or was there something specific that put it on your radar? So I guess I would count as a constructivist. So I'm very interested in getting a mechanistic approach to mathematics. And I fully understand that constructivism, as we have it right now, makes it very difficult to do mathematics because our tooling is kind of primitive. You know, we have dependent programming languages like uh, Idris or Agda or Koch or some of the more esoteric ones even. I was just interested at that time in any of the historical logic programming languages that were available or, or logical environments for computer mathematics, mostly because I think constructivism will be a big boom mathematically, but only after we've sort of solidified the computer side of it. So that you can just kind of program math like we currently program computers, which we don't necessarily have a great time programming computers, but I think it's a little nicer even than the constructivist crank it out by hand with a, a pencil and paper approach. So yeah, I, I was 
I, I was definitely a computer science student at that point, but I didn't fully know if I was going to like try and go through the master's and PhD track or if I wanted to go into industry. And I decided to kind of hedge my bets. So I invested a lot in systems programming. C especially was big at Portland State. But I also was trying to pick up logic programming, you know, prologue, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I burned through the prologue books, picked up Joe's, and then loved Erlang. And when you make it to Rackspace as someone with Erlang experience, if you're coming out of college, that may just be you've got enough Erlang experience to write some sample programs, or that may just be you've actually done real projects in Erlang. When you're coming into Rackspace, what is that looking like for that transition of the kinds of problems you were solving in university? to having to solve with the orchestration at Rackspace? Yeah, so I didn't understand OTP at all when I came to Rackspace. My sole experience had been with, what is it? I forget which airline book it is, but the ring of processes. Think about the ring of processes, but on a, a high-performance computing cluster. That's basically where I was with airline. So that's I didn't understand OTP at all. You know, I had done research from my logic background in formal methods of programming and constructing fault-tolerant systems, but didn't really understand that Erlang was applicable there. Joe's thesis covers that, but I, I didn't get it. So a good chunk of my initial experience at Rackspace was just learning OTP, like actually just learning how you would structure a system so that it's maintainable in the, the OTP method, but also can survive deviant behavior. You know, a lot of network devices aren't really designed to be manipulated, except but by hand, by a human being that can understand the behavior of these things. And we were trying to do it with computers, right? So how you design a system to crash and allow that crash to guide you in building a more correct system, a more fit for purpose system, I should say, because we never really hit correctness because the underlying systems weren't themselves correct. And we didn't really invest in any sorts of elaborate testing that now I would push for as a more experienced engineer. But I just didn't know they existed. I didn't really understand property testing. I thought at the time, and I remember this very distinctly, I thought that if you were going to write a correct program, you had to start from proofs. And then from the proofs, you could derive simple programs, and then you could derive a proof that the conglomeration, the concatenation of those simple programs, et cetera. You know, it was a very logician way of constructing programs, and it's not at all how I work now. I think now I have a much more empirical approach, which works much better. I think in the future, we'll probably have a more formal approach, or, or at least I hope so, but we're, we're simply not there yet. And I think the empirical approach will necessarily influence how the future formal methods in not just even academic software, but production software, it'll necessarily influence and has the way that gets worked. Yeah, so I didn't understand OTP. I didn't really understand how to build software at all. I didn't understand how to how to be good, right? I just didn't have any taste. And what taste I did have was mathematicians. And that's not super useful when you're trying to just get a network devices to behave. And you go to Rackspace, you start learning OTP, you move on to AdRoll, you're now at Postmates. And in our kind of notes for the episode, you mentioned that you're helping 
other people pick up Erling in leading extraction, you probably were, were you one of the early people at Adroll Tool that when people came in, you had to help get them up to speed, A, at least on your bidder, but just in Erling and structure in general? What is some of those things that you're finding that are most of these people you're working with semi-familiar with Erling already? Or are there certain things that you're finding when people come in that are common sticking points or common misconceptions about how things work that have to be explained or help be understood and transmitted? That's common issues or problems conceptually for people. Yeah. So I was hired at Postmates by Emed Al-Haradi, who had been at Mochi forever. And Mochi, I don't know if Mochi exists now or not, but they were a big airline shop. A lot of those people went to Machine Zone. When I was hired at Postmates, there were already a lot of Machine Zone and ex-Mochi people floating around. And I, when I say a lot, by percentage of total software engineers, it was high, but it was only like three or four people. But the the environment that I came into was definitely the first project that I worked on at Postmates was a big message box. So if you connect via your cell phone or the, the website or anything, you connect to this big airline message box. I came in and started working on that, and it was still pre-minimal viable project, but it was well-structured. You know, it's John Koenig's project. He's very good at airline. So... Postmates was kind of a breath of fresh air where I come in, you know, I'm hired for Erlang expertise and there's also Erlang expertise around where previously in my career, I'd helped out with teaching people. You know, when I first showed up, here's what I know about OTP. Here's how you would structure systems. Here's how we can start to work this toward a more OTP structured system. I did consulting work every so often, kind of in that, that same vein. As Postmates grew, we definitely hired people that didn't know Erlang, as you do. And because we had a large mass of people that already knew it, it was actually fairly easy to teach people. Easier than I'd previously enjoyed, mostly because there were a bunch of people to ask questions of. I think we have an Erlangers, you know, internal communications channel, and there's like 20 or 30 people on it. Erlang and Elixir, I should say. We use both very happily at Postmates. So inside of my current team, you know, it's me, Tom Santero, that kind of formed the, the core of it. And then we brought on two engineers, neither of which knew Erlang, but I don't think it took more than two or three weeks to really spin them up. And kind of the same story for one of the other systems projects that we work closely with where they work in Elixir. Yeah, it's, it's lovely to have such a critical mass of people that you can just sort of, oh, yeah, here's this oddball thing. Here's some books. Please ask questions. And coming in now, there's a lot more resources than the three years ago when I talked to you, and there's a lot more resources than three years before that, even, when it was like Joe's book was about the only one out there. A couple yeah. books hit the same time, I think, The Erling and OTP in Action, and Fred's Learning Some Erling book, and I think one more kind of hit around the same time. But what have you found of introducing people now, even with that team, and people, if you were trying to introduce new hires at AdRoll a couple of years ago, or even introduce people in Rackspace? Yeah, so the environment's totally changed. Joe's book had come out when I was at Rackspace, and I remember very greedily reading it. I, I think we bought a team copy, and I was the first one to grab it, and it took me weeks to give it back. 
for anyone to go through it. But yeah, I mean, like I mentioned, when I learned it, I learned it from a thesis where it was partially a language tutorial, but not really. You know, the documentation for Erlang has always been pretty good if you already understand the language. It's an excellent reference set of documentation. It's challenging to learn from just the Erlang docs and the environment that we have now with the the books that you mentioned, you can sort of choose, you know, based on your your person that's going to learn Erlang, you can choose which book to give them, or they can use multiple books to kind of hit at the blind spots of either, which is a situation that is fairly unique. And then if you throw Elixir into it, they've written a ton of introductory tutorials or introductory documentation, I should say, that's very useful if you're learning any of the OTP languages or the Beam languages, I guess we're referring to them. Because they're both basically the same language with different faces on the top of them. That's also really useful for teaching people, especially some of the Elixir interactive tutorials. Those are great. I think I've never known an easier time to learn Erlang than we have right now. And it feels like you're repeating that a little bit with Rust. You started looking at Rust last time I talked to you. You had some interest before you really started picking it up, but it was appealing to you about three years ago. You've picked it up in the past couple of years. It's still early days, starting to get more books out there. I've seen getting more documentation. I believe Steve Kaladnik has been working with Rust documentation for a couple of years now and pushing that. And so I've seen some of the documentation evolve slowly from just being on the periphery and not looking too much at it, but seeing things crop up. How are you finding the same kind of thing when you're pulling in people to Rust? Yeah, so Rust is different in that there was an understanding from the outset that once Mozilla was going to make this a an actual language for people to use, there was an understanding from the outset that there needed to be a focus on documentation. So the documentation for Rust really appeared before Rust itself stabilized. Steve, as you mentioned, was learning Rust while he wrote the first version of the book. It's called, actually, I think if you Google Rust the book, you'll get version one of it, which Steve wrote. But that's maintained by the community. There's a lot of people that have written that at this point. Rust, like Elixir, has a lot of really excellent introductory material and then an extremely elaborate and comprehensive set of reference documentation. It's a challenging language to learn, but not because of want for documentation, but because it's a systems programming language. And it's hard, I think, to reason about you know memory allocation strategies and things like that if you've, if you've never had to, which most people don't necessarily have to, kind of reasonably. It's, a, it's a, an odd thing to have to worry about. So I've definitely noticed teaching people Rust that there's difficulty for people that are not from a systems programming language background, you know, C or C++. They have difficulty understanding how memory allocations would work, sort of why you would be concerned about them, how pointers work, which Rust calls them references, although there are actually raw pointers available to you. So there's that, the difficulty of teaching people sort of system programming language in an unfamiliar environment, or What's one of the other difficulties? Coping with Rust's somewhat unique or mostly unique memory model around mutability or around at least once use of references. Both of those tend to be sticking points, especially when you throw in big community projects like Tokyo, 
where they're still unstable. They're moving pretty quickly. The documentation isn't quite there. Their memory story is a little rough because of the way the memory system works. Although, you know, as we talk, that's a uh, change is actually going to be stabilized in the next release cycle that'll make that much nicer. So yeah, it reminds me very much of kind of those early, early days of me teaching myself Erlang and then trying to teach it to people where there wasn't necessarily a very fixed point to tell people to look at. You know, you sort of had to say, okay, here's a bunch of things. Please consider them all at once, and then we'll work together to find some type of knowledge in that. And then you mentioned people coming in being unfamiliar with systems languages. You also mentioned part of what appeals to you, you think about Rust, is your background with SML and feeling very feeling very SML-ish. Have you noticed there being a adaptation curve from the people who are familiar with systems languages like C or C++, but fitting it into the world that's taken inspiration from the ML family languages? Yes. So I, I think what I really like, I like types. I like strongly typed languages, which is maybe a, an unusual assertion to make because I also really love Erlang. And Erlang is, does have a, a type system of a sort, but it's not strong, strongly typed. It's, it, it is a very informed guess. What I've noticed from people that have been doing C, especially, is they'll write C in Rust which is not wrong, right? Like you definitely have to dip into that when you're building very high performance data structures. And that's been useful in the CERN project. But there's a, there's a piece missing around how you would design a computer program from types or from traits in Rust context, you know, how you would structure things so that you squelch problems at compile time versus at runtime. And that's been, I don't have a lot of experience teaching that just kind of from the background of the people that I've worked with over the years, they usually come with that knowledge pre-baked. So that's been an interesting one. And I haven't had too much of a, a chance to work through that. And then we're coming up on time. We still got some time left. Still got a couple topics to cover. Things like other things you're doing in Rust and want to get a perspective of the functional side of Rust because you've got that functional background with the SML and Haskell and Erlang. But as we've been covering, is there anything so far that has come up that you think we need to touch upon more or we need to go back and revisit before we continue on? I want to make sure we take a pause and just make sure that nothing has crept up in your mind that we'd be remiss to talk about at this point if we continue on and just end the episode without talking about it. No, I mean, nothing Nothing comes to mind. I guess I'm not, I'm not shy about talking, so I feel like maybe... Yeah, maybe I think I've chased everything down when it pops into my mind. <laughs> okay, and then uh, so we'll continue on with the functional side of Rust before we dig into a little bit more of some of the other stuff you're working on and involved with, with the Rust community as well. But the SML background, I've heard some people say it might be a little tricky because it's still systems programming, so you can't quite take advantage of immutable data structures depending on what stuff you're doing. And it may just be the problems people are trying to solve. But what is your experience of taking your your functional leanings with Erlang, with SML, with even maybe some of the logic stuff with Prolog and your Haskell experience? And how are you finding that fitting into the Rust world? Because Rust has come out and said, oh, we've stolen a lot of stuff from the ML family languages. 
ML and Haskell and some of these likes were strong inspirations. Oh, yeah. Where is that falling when you actually are practicing Rust? How are you finding that hybrid of a systems language, but still ML background? And when do you give one versus the other, I guess, in some scenarios, if you've hit those? Let me answer that in kind of a roundabout way. When you think about designing an Erlang system, you are thinking about a group of concurrent actors that are internally sequential, right? And that's the that's the primary simplification of Erlang. You don't have to reason about concurrent environment for the internal part of an actor. So it's just all messages. If you take that kind of similar mindset and you, you push it onto Rust, what you end up building are systems that are inherently mutable or are impure or, or sequential internal to a module. But then at, a, at the module boundary or even at a type boundary, you can layer them together as functions, as streams of things or as concatenations of things, not as, as complicated as you can do in Haskell or OCaml, which are you know, kind of big community influences. Although there is discussion about building things like that. You know, if anyone can put together an RFC for, say, higher kind of types that the Rust community can agree on, then we'll get higher kind of types. So you end up structuring a system as this complicated piece of algorithm or data structure that's kind of systems programming nightmarish inside, but then it exposes this lovely interface or it's not entirely functional because it's a sequential language or not, not sequential, excuse me. Um, you know, it's not a functional language per se, but you can definitely program it like one. You just, you put the boundary at the type or at the module and CERNIN is structured like that internally to a sink, which is a, a place where data flows into and then egresses from the system. There's all sorts of nightmarish stuff happening. There's all sorts of mutable state flying around and concurrent access. And, you know, I think in some places we used to have manipulation of raw memory, but then the, the interface of the sink is push event, flush. Each one of those sinks can then be manipulated at an even higher level because of they implement a trait. And that trait can be used generically across all of the possible implementations. So that's very functional, layering those things together. And you, you see some of that in the structure of other things. Well, a lot of the new evented I.O. stuff that's happening that people are very excited about, a lot of that's built on traits. Those traits you implement however you want, but they behave as just the, the interface of the thing. And then you can pass that around and throw it into functions and manipulate it with higher order functions, things like that. Um, the logger subsystem is kind of written in that same way where the internal details of the logger can be awful and complicated and nightmarishly unsafe, but the, the external point of it can be this lovely, safe interface. That's actually one one area of difference, I think, in the community, they tend to, in the Rust community, they tend to talk about things in terms of safety versus unsafety. But partially that means memory safety, and partially that means safety of interface. You know, can you set up state wrong and use this thing incorrectly? And usually a, a good design in, in Rust keeps a thing safe in all of the possible meanings there, which is in itself is going to rely on the type system. It's going to rely on, on say, module structure or any of the more functional-ish properties of the language to sort of enforce that not necessarily memory-safe notion of safety. 
There's a lot of ways that you can get the type system on board for checking properties of your system. This thing just will not compile if the types are arranged incorrectly. And I think there's an increasing amount of experimentation on exploiting more of that ML heritage kind of through the lens of Haskell. So how, how could we how can we do better at that? Which I think is tremendously exciting because it's a language where if you need to, you can just pull out the raw bits of memory and fiddle with them, which is something that's you know difficult to achieve in stock Haskell. You, you can do it in GHC. That's something that's difficult to achieve in OCaml. And it's something that's very difficult to achieve in Erlang because it's not really designed for that. Yeah, I, it's the sort of language where I did at AdRoll, I did a, a fair amount of C++ to augment the real-time bidding system that I worked on. And that was hard. It was hard to get right. It was hard to make sure that you know it didn't crash or manipulate memory inappropriately. And there were tools to be used, you know, fuzzers or Valgrind or things like that, but it was it was tricky to get right. And it would still be tricky to get right in Rust, but less tricky. I think partially that's just due to the, the basic type system and partially that's due to how you would design the system. And then since you're doing more with Rust and you've got that Haskell background, you've seen some of this other stuff, where do traits fall in? Because I've, I can see them being a couple of different ways. As Are they just interfaces? Are they like Haskell's type classes or Clojure's protocols? There's a couple different ways that these all could be played in. Are they like an abstract class or Erlang's behaviors? These traits sound some form of generic interface to use the loosest definitive interface, almost like the contract that you're going to do. But how does that actually align with some of these other languages and the concepts of interfaces or type classes or protocols or behaviors or whatever it is? Where does traits fit in with Rust? at a more concrete level. Yeah, so you, you can use a trait in Rust as a first class thing in a limited set of circumstances. Usually it's used to provide constraints on the possible types that can be put into either a struct or a function or even a generic parameter to another trait. So in that sense, it's kind of a, a mix of a type class uh, although I think it's strictly less powerful than type class in Haskell because, you know, those are first class or an interface. You definitely see some Rust programs that just use them as interfaces. You know, they're not hardly any more than that. I think, boy, I can't remember if, I know I saw some proposals recently to push the Rust trait closer to a full-on type class, but I don't think those have landed yet. Partially the problem is, you know, how the compiler represents a trait you, know, you don't want to add any overhead to the in-memory representation of the structure to tag it as, say, this trait and that trait and that trait and that trait, because then it's not a zero-cost abstraction. Although I think there is a little, little tagging. It's been a while since I looked at that. And that's what I wasn't sure was, are these interfaces, are they closer to the type classes? Because I've seen some of the Haskell and other Haskell family of type classes where they can be self-derived versus sometimes you have traits in other languages or, well, not quite traits, but more maybe closer to the Erlang behaviors. Some modules, things like Ruby or Python or things like this, where all you have to do is implement this one method and then you get all these other things along for the ride. Things like 
the general concept of innumerable or the behaviors in Erlang of like a gen server. If you implement these callbacks, we have a bunch of other behaviors that you get along with it. So if it's innumerable, we know how to fold, map, reduce, all this kind of stuff over it. If you just implement essentially a yield or next or whatever function, I didn't know where that was falling on that side as well. Yeah, so you you definitely get you get that, right? Like you can have default implementations of traits and then those get picked up for free. And that's pretty common, especially in the more trait-heavy Rust that I've seen, where you have these layers of traits and each individual layer implements a certain part of it. And at any point, you can implement your type in terms of one layer of the trait. And that's really useful. Cut down on quite a bit of Cernan just bloat by implementing default traits that you can then make specific for kind of oddball use cases. But it, it really made CERN a much nicer project to program in. I think there is a little discussion in the community. Should this be a trait? Should this be a struct? It's not always clear which is which. Right now, the compiler is a little slow to compile tons and tons of traits because that actually implies a resolution algorithm has to kick in where a trait is just a, a concrete thing. And then you've also got a book you're working on for concurrency in Rust. So do you want to tease that and kind of tease how concurrency in Rust works, especially compared to some of these other languages that we may, that the audience may or may not be familiar with that you've got experience with, like the uh, standard MLs or OCamels or Haskells or even Erlang concurrency and where some of those ideas are shared and some of the things that are might be different or at least kind of tease the high-level concept of the book and give a, people a high-level understanding of what concurrency in Rust looks like? Yeah, so the concept for the book is to teach low-level systems programming concurrency, operating system threads, locking, and then we work down into atomic sort of lock-free, weight-free programming, and then show the applications of those through both the Rust ecosystem and how you would use the more readily available libraries in the ecosystem to structure your programs. That style of concurrent programming is really in contrast to the way Erlang does it, you know, Erlang or Elixir, where they use message passing. If you look at Cernan closely, you'll notice that we actually structure Cernan as a graph. So there are three kind of concepts in Cernan, a source, a filter, and a sink. A source pushes into a filter, a filter pushes into a sink or another filter, and then a sink egresses from the system. And a, a source is where information ingresses. Each one of those are basically structured like an Erlang actor. They're sequential internally, and they communicate over queues or pass messages. So Cernan is a message passing system, and it just so happens to be programmed in kind of the raw form, which you would see if you look inside of the beam, but you don't usually look inside of the beam. So my book is trying to explore how would you build such a system? How would you reason about such a system? What's available to you on modern computing hardware? And it's using Rust. Well, because the publisher wanted a Rust book. I like Rust. And while there is a little bit of documentation out and about, the Rust Nomicon especially, about doing this sort of thing in Rust, a lot of the material that you'll find is written implicitly or explicitly for C++ which is okay if you know both languages, but if you only know Rust, 
you're kind of an intermediate programmer in Rust and you want to know how to do this style of lowish level or all the way low level concurrent programming, but using Rust and you don't know C++, then hopefully my book will be good for you. Hopefully my book will do a good job at explaining kind of the basics of modern CPU architectures, how synchronization between multiple hardware threads work, and then show you how to apply that in your projects and reason about it and test it and decide that it's actually fit for purpose rather than incidentally working and how it relates to the abstract memory model that Rust implements rather than the specific behavior of your processor, which may or may not be the processor that you deploy to. So it's much different from, say, the Erlang model or sort of the cloud Haskell model where you have these you know, actors that are sending messages and whatnot, very much closer to the way concurrency would work in ML where you have an operating system thread, you have POSIX threading, but then I try and go in deeper. What if you do if mutexes aren't, aren't for you? What if you want threads to run independently without any synchronization? What do you do then? So I don't know, we'll see how it turns out. The description is a little omnibus, which kind of worries me, but so far some of the feedback has been good. It's a dense book. <laughs> it's a very dense book. But yeah, Rust, you know, I think Andrew Stone at VMware wrote an actor system, which got discussed at CodeMesh this past year in Rust itself. You know, there's Event.io, Tokyo, things like that that are happening. So there's a lot of different ways to approach concurrency on a modern computer. And my book is focused kind of specifically on the lowest possible approach you could take and then build stuff on top of that. And we'll see how it goes, I guess. It's about half written at this point. And then just a little bit more of an explanation on the concurrency in Rust. I've heard it's got a, I'm not quite sure how to put it, but it's got a special approach, I guess, in the sense, because if you're doing systems programming or you've had to do some concurrent programming, even in Java or some .NET languages or something else where you're having to do threads and mutexes and uh, this thing is essentially marked as only one thread can ever get through this thing at a time. Rust sounds like it's got a slightly different approach too because of some of the immutability and inspiration it takes from functional languages, which is one of the appeals some people have about functional languages is if this thing's immutable, concurrency can happen all day long because we're limiting the rights. And with Rust, I understand there's things like borrow pointers where whoever's got that is the only owner. So there's never more than one writing to it because you either own that reference and Rust takes care of the concurrency. So what at a high level, what does that concurrency story look like when you're thinking at the systems language compared to some of these other systems languages? Yeah. So Rust is memory safe. That's always what's on the tin, memory safe programming language. But the, the question is, what does that actually mean? So you have a piece of memory parked somewhere on the heap, right? Like somewhere out in RAM, there's a piece of memory and your program has a reference to it, a, a pointer to it. In Rust, that's called a reference. You actually can get a raw pointer, which is the same thing as a C pointer. But for this discussion, we'll just kind of push that under the rug. Although that's a really interesting area of exploration. So you have a pointer, a safe pointer, a reference to a piece of memory, and that reference can be either mutable or immutable. Rust guarantees that there is only ever one mutable reference to a piece of memory, meaning that there's only ever one possible writer. You can have many 
immutable references to a piece of memory. So there can be tons and tons of readers of that memory. You can't have an immutable reference at the same time as a mutable reference. So from the sequential point of view, what Rust does is it tracks what are called lifetimes. So how long does this piece of memory live? And also how long does this particular reference live? And lifetimes, and this is going to change, but lifetimes right now are pegged to scope. So as a variable moves into scope, memory is allocated or a reference is created to a piece of memory that's already pre-allocated. And then as it moves out of scope, the memory is either deallocated or the reference disappears. So that's how, by tracking lifetimes, that's how Rust is able to guarantee that exclusive property of a reference that you can only, you either or have an immutable reference, irreferences, or a mutable reference. So that's the, that's the sequential memory safety story. So then what do you do when you have multiple operating system threads or multiple hardware threads that are trying to access the same bit of memory at the same time? Rust has two traits that are really important for resolving that. One's, and they're called send and sync. Both of those dictate how memory is allowed to move between threads. So if I have in one thread a mutable reference and then I move it into another thread, that's okay because there was only ever one mutable reference. But I have to get rid of my mutable reference on the sender side. That's not necessarily always the case. You don't necessarily always have to get rid of a piece of memory, right? If you have an object or a type that implements both send and sync, then it's possible to safely pass it between two threads. So two threads can have a reference to that piece of memory. So something like ARC, which is an atomic reference counter, which uses reference counting to provide isolation for a piece of memory. If you pass an ARC between things and you're only reading, that's great. Those are all immutable. If you're writing, then you have to do this coordination step, usually through a mutex or read-write lock or... You can do unsafe things, which imply that the unsafe is not necessarily unsafe. It just means that Rust sort of goes, okay, I can't prove anything. Please do the right thing. Uh, and that's where raw pointers get in. So you, raw pointers are actually send and sync because they're just integers, right? So there's no unsafety to just passing an integer between threads, but deferencing a raw pointer is unsafe because you don't necessarily know what's going to be on the other side. So you have to have some coordination step between threads that have safely sent this pointer between them to make sure that they don't interact inappropriately. So Rust's concurrency story at the systems programming language is not atypical for C++ or C in that it doesn't have a garbage collector. It allows you to manipulate raw memory. It does, like C++, have these higher level abstractions that help or, yeah, they help with safe memory access. But then where Rust goes further is that it has that immutable mutable exclusion it has the ability to disallow programs from sending memory between threads unsafely and then manipulating them unsafely unless you explicitly tag a bit of your program as unsafe in which case you know you're guaranteeing that you're going off-road and you know what you're doing which is great it's, it's good fun did that answer your question yeah i think that does because that was kind of answering the question of i hear about these borrow pointers and mutability and immutability and i wasn't sure if that's more the internal synchronous versus concurrent threads versus all the different forking and all these other kind of things you can have with concurrency that i'm vaguely familiar with 
a dozen plus years later from university courses when I was doing my C and C++ projects and some of the world of Java synchronization and .NET synchronization. But I was, wasn't was sure where Rust was fitting in, given some of that desire of cribbing from Haskell and ML and introducing immutability to this as well. So I think that's a better picture for not really working in Rust as, at this point. Yeah, so all of those fork join, all of those higher level synchronization approaches that you mentioned, those exist in the crates ecosystem. One important library is Rayon, another would be Crossbeam. They build on the sort of fundamental tooling that Rust, the language provides. But if you're programming in Rust, it's very unlikely that you're not also pulling in crates. And I think Rust has taken a good approach here where the standard library is very minimal, which saves the compiler team from having to think about, you know, maintaining HTTP libraries and things like that. And to sort of focus on the fundamentals of the language to sort of allow these crates that are trying to do something very complicated with the fundamentals to do better. So in Rust, there are streams. A lot of programs call them streams. They're iterators or generators. Basically, you have a piece of memory that may or may not be contiguous, but you have this abstraction over the top of it that allows you to say next, next, next. And it gives you the next thing for however that iterator is decided next should be defined. That's sequential, right? Like you have to call next. Rayon allows you to take an iterator and make it parallel and then apply functions over that parallel iterator and then join them all back together before returning. Crossbeam has built on top of Rust support for atomic programming and memory safety. It's built a lot of block-free data structures, epoch-based reclamation specifically for like reclaiming memory. So Rust doesn't have a garbage collector, right? Java was one of the very early programming languages to have a concurrent collection. So you want a concurrent hash map. In Java, that's fine. When things drop out of the hash map, you just hand them back to the garbage collector. Rust doesn't have that. So you have to look through the literature, see what other systems programming languages do. One of the faster is epoch-based reclamation and Crossbeam implemented that. And when you go through Crossbeam's implementation, and you know my book has a chapter on this, which is why it's top of head for me right now, the internal comments actually talk about this would normally be unsafe in another programming language, but for us, it's safe because the compiler can guarantee that this mutable reference will be isolated, right? So we don't have to worry about it. Just make sure not to pass this, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of references to the, the fundamental safety that Rust provides but it's a, it's a minimal set. But the crates ecosystem is indispensable for these higher level synchronization primitives. They just don't technically live in the language. And that's a good recap of Rust. And I've had a couple of people on recently talking about Rust and all getting into it. And I knew you've been interested from last time we talked and you were doing more. So it was nice to be able to get a rundown of where Rust fits in because you hear that sale of, we want to kind of blend Haskell with or OCaml or SML with the C and C++ and kind of have this hybrid systems language and be able to do everything you can and drop down into C or potentially drop down into C and then assembly via C if we need to because we really need it. So it's nice to get a rundown of Rust. So is there anything else we should make mention to? You mentioned your book. You mentioned a couple of these Rust libraries that are open source from Postmates. I know you go and do a lot of conferences. 
Do you have any upcoming presentations? Do you have any other places for people to find you in person coming in the future? Or is there any other projects, either of yours, Postmates, or anything else that you want to kind of put out there and make sure people know about? Well, you know, I, I don't actually have that many talks coming up this year. I got married last year, so I didn't submit anything. And then I, I kind of got used to having the downtime. And then I started writing a book. And the book is taking up a lot of time. So I, I don't have, if you're in the Bay Area, you know, hit me up. I'm around, but I'm not traveling all that much this year. I think I'm, I'll, I'll be at Code Mesh in London in November and maybe a Rust conference, but we'll, we'll see. And then any other projects or things you want people to point to, you'd point people to for more information or other examples or just other things you think the people should know about to get better pictures of this. You mentioned a couple of these others, Crossbeam and all these others as examples for people to understand some of the concurrency and rest. You've got your stuff. Is there your stuff, Postmate stuff or anything else in general you think people should be checking out to be able to get more depth on either Rust or Erlang? Yeah. So I mean, if you are wanting to get more in depth on Erlang, Francesco Cicerini's latest book, I think, is indispensable. You know, we've given a copy of that book to every new programmer that we've pulled into our team that didn't previously know Erlang. I mean, I, I read it and I learned a bunch of stuff and I've been doing it for years and years at this point. Erlang or Elixir, right? It's applicable to both. I think if you're wanting to learn more Rust, now is a really nice time. The language is basically stabilized. If you're wanting to do network IO things, you're going to be continually trying to keep up because all of that's stabilizing right now. But if you're interested like me in say, sort of exploiting the machine at its own level, it's a very comfortable language for doing that sort of work, for dipping down into the unsafe bits of the language, but structuring those in a way that exposes no unsafety, um, which is a thing that I always wanted from C++ but could never quite get. And I know it's possible to do, but it's pretty challenging to do. Any of the Rust documentation is very good. I think O'Reilly had a well-received Rust book. I think there's a Manning book in Meep right now that I haven't read because I haven't wanted to accidentally copy anything into my book, which is supposed to be very good. My book is slated to come out later this year, uh, but it's intended for more intermediate programmers who are looking to to do deep dives on, you know, I do a deep dive on the compiler. I do a deep dive on different libraries in the ecosystem, different crates. I think if you're looking for good examples of Rust programs, RipGrep is a very good one, especially if you're interested in regular languages. I think the Quick Check library in Rust is very good. The compiler itself is well-written. You can start digging into the implementation of types. I think the hash map type is very, very well-documented internally and highly, highly recommend people read through it. Yeah, I mentioned Rayon, which is a parallel iterator language, Crossbeam, which is for concurrent data structures. Tokyo is the thing that people are working pretty hard on to get network I.O., as a, a comfortable thing to do in Rust. People are increasingly interested in applying Rust to WASM, which I don't know too much about web browsers, but being able to compile a programming language that isn't JavaScript to a web browser seems to excite people. 
yeah, boy, I think it's a, a brand new, relatively new language, which people are using in pretty intense ways, which is a rarity. And I think I've seen applications of it that I just don't understand because it's significantly out of my domain of expertise, which is a good thing. It means that the language is being applied very broadly. It reminds me a lot of how people were excited about D. But I think the thing that sort of killed D was that, you know, parts of it, well, I mean, it, that, that's been mulled over quite a bit. I don't necessarily see the same trap for Rust that D hit, which I think is exciting. We need to integrate more of the esoteric type theory into mainstream languages, which we've been seeing. But boy, progress can't come fast enough there, I guess. Yeah, I, Rust community is, is also extremely friendly. Any of the mailing list sites, I mean, they're not mailing lists, they're web forums. Very, very helpful to beginner people. Um, Rust Twitter is pretty nice. Rust Mastodon is much larger. Yeah, I think if you're interested at all, give it a shot. In the Cernan project, we've tried to tag things as help wanted and also difficulty level. I'm very happy to mentor people on any of the projects that I know intimately. You know, I'm BL Troutwine on Twitter. If you would like other project recommendations to, to look through or to contribute to, I think Andrew Stone's work at VMware has been really interesting. It's kind of a little outside of what people have been expecting to be able to do with Rust, which I think is always, it's always really valuable to find people that are putting things in odd ways. I think Without Boats has been doing really interesting work since he got hired at Mozilla. The documentation team, there's a new formal methods team for Rust to sort of formalize Rust itself. It, 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 if you're interested in a lot of different areas in computer science, there's probably something happening in the Rust ecosystem somewhere. And whether or not it'll be sustainable, I don't know, but it's fun right now. That sounds good. And a lot of links for me to go through and add to the show notes. And then you mentioned your Twitter. Where are the other places people can find you online, keep up to date with what's going on? Do you have a blog? Do you have some other stuff? Is there a Postmates blog that updates some of the stuff? Where are the best places for people to follow along and keep up to date as you continue your learning and share what you've got going on? So I'm somewhat active on Twitter these days, and I have a website at troutwine.us, but I, I think it's at this point just a blog, blog.troutwine.us. I write, used to write more, and then I started writing a book, and now I write publicly much, much less. I don't have any talks coming up, but I've done a lot of talks over the years. If you, I guess if you search for my name in YouTube, a bunch of those will pop up. But yeah, just talk to me on Twitter. Always happy to chat with people. Sounds good. I'll get those added to the show notes and I'll even get your blog and stuff. So if the book finishes or you start promoting stuff, they can make sure to catch it wherever as well. If you start putting some, we're nearing the finish line statuses as well. So we'll get those added to the show notes so people can find that and just keep an eye whenever the updates come. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Brian, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure catching up with you again. Last time we talked was very interesting, very informative on both ends. And always nice to be able to talk and catch up and see what people have gone on and learned and see what's picking someone's interest. And as always, just figuring out what the gaps of all these different things of functional programming and related topics are out there to know how little I actually know with what's going on in the wor world of software development. So it's always nice to get a little flashlight shining in some obscure area just to know what the current state of the world is. So 
Thanks for sharing your, some of your Erlang experience and your Rust experience and keeping me updated. Yeah, thank you. It was a real pleasure to talk to you today. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.